0: Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's episode, I talk with Luke Eplin about his new book, Our Team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball. The story traces the integration of the American League by Larry Dolby and Satchel Page and the improbable union of four men on the Cleveland Indians, climaxing in the 1948 World Series. This is Luke's first book, but his writings have appeared in The New Yorker, Slate, Daily Beast, among other periodicals. Luke, welcome to That Said.
1: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: So, Luke, i like to start these interviews by asking our authors to tell us something about themselves. When did they grow up? How did they get interested in the topic upon which they've written?
1: Uh, well, I grew up in southern Illinois in a small town near St. Louis, um, My father was a huge St. Louis Cardinals fan, but his father, my grandfather, was a huge St. Louis Browns fan. The St. Louis used to have two Major League Baseball teams uh, before before World War II, the Cardinals, who were usually pretty good, and the Browns, who were usually pretty terrible. My grandfather was odd in that he liked the Browns. And I think that anybody that knows anything about the Browns knows that Bill Beck was the former owner of the Browns. And I'd heard these wild stories about Bill Beck that he used to shoot off fireworks, that he brought a little person to the plate, that he would have the fans manage from the bleachers. And I was always interested in him as a a figure, as a character, as as kind of an American mythological figure. So I'd been wanting to write a story about him for a while. And through researching him, I came upon this story.
0: So you I heard you say once in an an earlier interview that you sort of started out thinking that you'd write about the Browns as sort of as an homage to your to your grandfather. So tell us a little bit about the process that led you from the Browns and Bill Vec to the quartet of people that formed the heart of uh, your book.
1: That's right. I was interested in the Browns as a way of sort of paying, paying homage to my grandfather and to my own sort of uh, St. Louis heritage, and I thought that I would know the city well and that it could be a slightly interesting book. We had settled on, my agent and I had settled on a book that was going to be a dual biography of Bill Vec and Eddie Goodell. Eddie Goodell was the little person that came to the plate for the St. Louis Browns in 1951. And he had a very short and tragic life. I believe he was an alcoholic. He died quite young. It was, it was a tough story for him. And I kept thinking to myself that this was quite a depressing story to be told about a team that not a lot of people remembered. And while I was researching Bill Beck's biography, he had owned the Indians before he owned the Browns. So I went back and through the archives and sort of reading all I could about Beck's tenure on the Indians to get background on him. While I was doing so, these other names kept coming to the surface. Larry Doby, Satchel Page, Bob Feller. And I was thinking about that the most interesting thing that Bill Beck ever did was he integrated the American League as the owner of the Indians. And through these four figures, figures—Veeck, Dobie, Page, and Feller, two white, two black, I thought you could tell an alternate story of integration than the one that is generally told, which usually centers on Branch Rickey and Jackie Robinson. But this story was happening more or less at the same time, and it is equally as exciting and as meaningful.
0: In fact, I think in many respects, and we'll get through the foursome and the 1948 Cleveland Indians team, in many respects, because the Dodgers don't win the World Series until 55, right? And Jackie Robinson joins in 47. 47. there's There's a long history of failure by the Dodgers, whereas the Indians integrate and win. So, um... It's interesting. So let's let's continue on with the protagonists. You named them all: Beck, Page, Dolby, and and Feller. And you touched upon Beck a little bit. Give us his pedigree, because he, besides being the showman, you said Eddie Goodell. He was a little person. He was a baseball novelty in the sense that I think Beck was abusive. He he was three foot seven inches tall, and he signed him to a major league contract for one at bat. I mean. You know, there's something very disturbing about that. But besides that, tell us about Beck because he's a you know he's got a baseball pedigree that's pretty unusual.
1: Yeah, Bill Beck, I think, is one of the most fascinating figures in professional baseball. He is somebody who was born into the game quite literally. His father was the president of the Chicago Cubs back in the 1920s, and his father, even though he was a very sort of buttoned-up man who wore three-piece suits and uh, and was quite a dignified character, had one of the more sort of progressive minds of the game. He was doing things like instituting Ladies' Day in Chicago. He was putting the team on the radio. He was even trying to convince people that there should be interleague play between the American and the National Leagues uh in the 1920s. So he was quite forward-thinking in the way that he approached the game. Bill Vett grew up in this atmosphere, learning off of his father, so that by the time he was as a teenager, he already had as much baseball knowledge as people that had been in the game for 10 years or so. He immediately started working in the Chicago Cubs when he was a young man. And he's kind of quickly realized that he didn't want to work under anybody else. He wanted to be his own person. So when he was in his mid-20s, he went out and bought the Milwaukee Brewers, which were was a minor league team that was really down on its luck. Nobody was going to the game. The stadium was decrepit. And Vec kind of kicked off is what I guess you would call his, his festivities, his sideshows, his circus act that he did. He brought in dancers and bands and fireworks and all these sorts of things. Beck had this idea that competitive play on the field could coexist with entertaining sideshows before games and between innings. And this was not a common belief at that time. At that time, a lot of people thought that the grand old game of baseball was really all you needed to sell and all these other things would sort of harm the dignity and the integrity of the game. Beck didn't believe that. He believed that these things could coexist and you could mint more fans by giving them more entertainment value. So even if people weren't sort of big baseball fans, they might show up just to see what would happen at the baseball game. And then through the game they would learn more and want to come back for the baseball and he was quite successful in this and that everywhere he went he set attendance records
0: the thing that's interesting about veck too you said his father was a progressive in respect of putting baseball on the radio and having ladies day and all this stuff i, I would associate bill veck with being a progressive politically
1: is yes, that so bill veck was progressive in pretty much every sense of that that term you could even look at him and just sense that this was a man that was quite ahead of his time he did not unlike his father wear suits or hats or jackets or anything like that he liked to bustle about in sort of open neck sport shirts that almost went down to his navel he uh, he never wore a hat he was somebody that that really kind of dressed himself up in the clothes of the common person, and he would associate more with people on the bleachers than he would with owners in the owner's box. He would go out drinking a, after games with the fans. He was really sort of a humanist in that sense. He, he loved just sort of being around people, but he was progressive in terms so many different other things, one of which was race. Um, he was thinking about, uh, integration much, much longer before Jackie, before Branch Rickey was. He had I- ideas of integrating the league, uh, in the late 1930s. Um, he was a member of the NAACP. He sort of spoke out against residential segregation. He was a real progressive individual in all of these respects. And so if Branch Rickey hadn't integrated the Dodgers, Bill Veck was going to regardless. It was just something that was in his bones. It was part of his ideals.
0: In- indeed, I think there's a story that, that you tell about whether Vec was going to integrate, purchase and then integrate the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team, but then ran up against the, bl- the brick wall of Kennesaw Mountain Landis and the Gentleman's Agreement. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so in 1942, the Philadelphia Phillies were absolutely down on their luck. They barely had enough money to pay the bills, and so the owner was going to sell the team at the end of the season. This was right at the time whenever a lot of players were being drafted into World War II, and so talent was in short supply. Bill Veeck had this idea that he could buy the Phillies for cheap, and then, in order to turn them around into a contender— He was going to look for talent where other people weren't looking. He was going to stock its roster with players from the Negro Leagues. He had his eyes particularly on Satchel Paige, players like that, Josh Gibson, Monty Irving, all of these players that he thought if you just put them right into a major league team, they could dominate the competition and turn the Phillies right around. Beck's problem was that he was apparently uh, a little bit loose-lipped before he was doing this. He went into the commissioner's office, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and told him of his intentions of doing this. And Landis was one of these individuals who, as a commissioner, spoke to the press that there was no law about segregation in Major League Baseball. The color line was fictional in his his words. Uh, Any owner could sign any Black player they wanted to. They could sign 25 Black players if they wanted to. But behind the scenes, Landis took efforts to make sure this did not happen. He would always sort of chew people out if they said, I would be happy to sign Satchel Paige or something like that. It was sort of a gentleman's agreement and Landis enforced that gentleman's agreement. Beck had no patience for that gentleman's agreement. If if a Black player was going to help And win the World Series, he was going to sign them. So, whenever he told Landis of his intentions to buy the Phillies, Beck claimed that Landis steered the team away from him so this would not happen. There has been sort of doubt cast onto that because Bill Beck loved to tell a story and Bill Beck loved to embellish his stories, and so some people have wondered if this was something that Beck made up because it is a good story. But you can go into the archives at that time, and there are plenty of, of articles about Beck talking about his interest in the Phillies, whether or not he was going to stock it with Negro League players. That is not documented, but I tend to believe that Beck was was intending to do that.
0: So. Fast forward a little bit. He has the minor league team in Milwaukee, in Milwaukee which he then unloads. And he purchases the, the Indians, which had been a perennial um, loser. Why the Indians? And tell us a little bit about their their history.
1: Well, there are two questions there. One question for why the Indians. Villovec went to war whenever he didn't really have to. And he got severely injured very early on in the war to the point where uh, it, it was basically a, an artillery shot misfired and sort of collapsed onto his leg, which caused this grave injury that really his leg should have been amputated, but he did not want that amputation to happen. So he spent about a year or two in hospital bed. And by the end of that period, he'd already sold the, the Brewers and he was champing at the bit to get some other sort of club to get back into baseball, to get back on his feet. And so really there were only two teams available, the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Cleveland Indians. He goes into Cleveland and he sees this city that had been a little bit down on its luck, but had a tremendously diversified industrial base. It had a population that was growing and had this enormous stadium on the lakefront. 78,000 people could fit into this stadium. And he's looking at this and saying, wow, imagine what I could do in here. And the team is, you know, it's it's a little bit down on its luck. It hadn't won the World Series since 1920. The previous ownership group really neglected the fans in terms of promotions. They had Bob Feller, who was an amazing pitcher, and Lou Boudreau, who was an incredible shortstop. So that's a good base of which to build on. But the, the owners didn't really know how to build a championship roster. And Vec kind of saw a good base there. And he thought to himself, well, with this stadium, with this with this crowd base that is starved for someone to pay attention to them and with this base of players, I could really make a splash.
0: In fact, I think you wrote that um, Washington Post uh, sports columnist Shirley Povich famously said once of the Indians that if they were in first place, it must still be spring, Uh, that 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 they always swooned. Um, toward the end of the season. Well, they were in the
1: American League, which had, you know, the New York Yankees, the Boston Red Sox, the Detroit Tigers, very heavy hitters there. The Indians had a tendency to sort of charge out of the gates and be ahead, you know, the first sort of leg of the race. And then inevitably the Yankees caught up to them and the Indians staggered backwards. And so they were one of these teams that looked great in May and terrible in September.
0: Yeah. So the first thing that, not necessarily the first thing, but one of the first things that that Vec does, true to his progressive politics and true to his notion of of winning, is he signs Larry Dolby. So t- tell us, if you would, who is who is Larry Dolby, and why did Vec choose Dolby?
1: Well. In 1946, when Beck, Beck bought the team, the Indians were very far out of the pennant race already, so he took that that season just to excite the fans, shoot off fireworks, have sort of clowns on the field, stunt people, all that sort of thing. In 1947, Beck was going to make his move to try to build a contender, and... He was really kind of playing a form of money ball in the 1940s. He sort of recognized that there was only so much he could do with trades. He recognized that there was no free agency. And where the talent was at the time was in the Negro Leagues. And Branch Rickey had already signed Jackie Robinson and Roy Campanella and some others. And Vec kind of wanted to wait to see how Robinson would do on the Dodgers before he made his move. He thought that Brooklyn was the right place for integration to to play out, that Cleveland was perhaps a little more traditionalist and conservative, and that they needed to sort of hang back a little bit. But as soon as it was seen that, that Jackie Robinson was successful and that nothing major had happened yet, Vec jumped into the fray, and he wanted to sign somebody like Larry Doby who – uh, was quite young. Doby was 23, was already sort of flashing signs of great potential and had his entire future in front of him. Doby had been in, uh, the military. He was in the Navy. Doby grew up in uh, Patterson, New Jersey, where he went to an integrated high school. So he was used to playing on mixed race teams. And he was also used to being the only black player on teams as he was on his baseball team in high school. And so he had all of these sort of boxes that Vec was looking for, for somebody who could handle the burdens and the stresses of being in the major leagues. What was very different and what we can talk about was how Dobie got to the major leagues, which was quite different than how Jackie Robinson got there.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that, because Jackie Robinson is signed by Branch Rickey. And we can talk a little bit about the signing process in your answer, please. But he's signed um, by Branch Rickey and spends a year in the minor leagues in Montreal um, before he makes his way into the Dodger organization. Very different for, and he's 27, um, Robinson is, very different um, experience that than Larry Dolby had just 11 weeks later. I mean, the thing that you have to remember about Dolby, which is so surprising, given the fame of Jackie Robinson and the basic anonymity of Dolby, is that there's only 11 weeks that separated the two of their um, integrating of the National and American Leagues, respectively.
1: Yeah, it's really kind of a difference of philosophies between Branch Rickey and, and Bill Beck. Rickey was a very sort of careful, studios, professorial man, and he signed Jackie Robinson in October of 1945 and told him that he was going to go to the minor leagues for a year. He really thought that there needed to be some sort of acclimation period um between whenever he was signed and whenever he went to the majors. This allow this would allow for Robinson to get used to being in these all-white spaces, the dugouts, to sort of get used to the abuse and that was going to come his way, all the pressures and burdens, but also for the white teammates to get used to the idea of integration and to sort of orient themselves to that, not only in the minor leagues but in the major leagues. So Jackie Robinson had 18 months between when he signed to whenever he finally debuted on the majors in April of 1947. Bill Veck thought that that sort of, you know, acclimation period would put too much pressure on a black player, that they would think too much about it, that there would just be all of these other burdens that they'd have to deal with. And so he wanted to sort of throw the player he signed from the Negro Leagues directly into the major league fire. It would almost be like ripping off of a bandaid or something like that. He, Besides, Bill Vec believed that the Negro leagues had as much talent and these, these players could go directly from the Negro leagues to the major leagues. There was a belief among white executives and players that Negro league players didn't have what it took. To make it into the major leagues, that even if they were talented enough to do it, that perhaps they hadn't learned as much fundamentals or their mental game wasn't strong enough that they needed. They would need sort of a warm up period in the minors. Feck, who had grown up in Chicago where he'd watched numerous Negro League games and had been around Negro Leagues all his life, knew that these players were as good as major league players. And he had that faith that he could just throw them in there and that they would survive. And so unlike Robinson, who had an 18-month buildup, Dobie played a game for his Negro League team, the Newark Eagles, boarded a train that very day, went overnight to Chicago, where the Indians were playing the White Sox, and the very next day, he was on the Indians. In other words, he traveled literally overnight from the Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues, and it was quite a shock to him.
0: Well, in fact, he was not very well-welcomed, by his fellow teammates. We know famously that Jackie Robinson had a brutal time of it, but there's that moment where Pee Wee Reese, a Southerner Kentuckian, I think, puts yeah. his arm around Jackie Robinson in a, in a, in a stadium, in a, in a political show of, you know, you're my teammate and I'm not going to put up with the racist abuse. There was not quite the same. Sort of uh, Pee Wee Reese type player for Dolby, at least at the outset, if I if I remember
1: correctly. No, and the reasons for this are varied. So Jackie Robinson, as you said, when he joined the the Dodgers, he was I think he got signed when he was 27, and he joined when he was 28. And so he was quite older and more mature, but he'd been a star at UCLA on the football team. And so he was known not only among black fans, but also among white fans. People would have known who Jackie Robinson was. Um, and so he had sort of a more of a, an advantage in that sense. And he came in as a starter that was earning his keep there and he'd gone through the minor leagues which a lot of people thought that Doby should have gone to the minors at least a lot of white players did because he hadn't earned his place yet on the roster a lot of Brooklyn Dodgers players thought well this guy has gone through two spring trainings and a minor leagues and he's he's got the talent and so there was there was less of that feeling with Doby, when he came up he was a second baseman the Indians had a guy named Joe Gordon on the team. He was an incredible uh, player. He'd won the MVP in 1942. There was no way Doby was going to take away playing time from him. So the only place Doby could play was first base. There was a Texan named Eddie Robinson who was on first base at that time. And when Lou Boudreau sat him down for one game and said, Larry, Larry Doby's going to take your place and play first base this game, Eddie Robinson quit the team. And he said, I do not want this person replacing me. Robinson swears it was because he was worried about playing time, but he was also a Texan. And there were perhaps some racial feelings that were mixed up in there. And it caused quite a stir to have somebody quit the team rather than have Dobie play. And even though Eddie Robinson eventually came back to the team, Doby never never started another game that entire 1947 season, and I think really it showed what could happen if uh if Doby took away playing time from a white player. So the entire 1947 season, Doby only comes to bat around thirty thirty some times, and so he doesn't have enough time in the field to have a, like a Pee Wee Reese moment. He's usually just coming in as a pinch hitter, or a pitch runner, or stuff like that. So he never gets a chance to find his footing. He feels nervous the entire time. He doesn't get a chance to settle into a groove. And by the end of the 1947 season, Doby looks like a failure. And Vec, in his philosophy, looks like it had failed as well.
0: I understand that Dobie, though plagued with loneliness and quite open about it in 47, was at least talking to Jackie Robinson about shared experiences, right? Was there not communications between them where each was alone on the team, on their respective teams, but they were uh, sort of in concert with one another to say, you know, we we can do this. The pressures were great, but we can, we can do this.
1: Yeah, so Larry Doby, when he comes up, can't stay in the same hotels as his teammates in certain cities, and even in the the cities where he can stay in there, he bunks alone. This is a time whenever uh, baseball players have roommates, but there wasn't a sort of tradition of a white player bunking with a black player, so Dobie was almost always alone after games by himself, and apparently he would call Jackie Robinson when he was on the road, or Jackie Robinson would call him, and they would sit there in their hotel rooms alone and sort of talk about the pressures and the burdens that they're going through and sort of keep themselves going give each other encouragement work through these things I mean these are these are the only two men in the country who were who was going through this who knew what it felt like to be like that so they really leaned on each other uh in 1947 to 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 carry on
0: I want to move to the next um protagonist because I want to Get to the, the 1948 season, which is sort of at the heart of, of your story in the, in the world series. There's a fellow on the 1947. He's been there since 36, but on the 1947 team named Bob Feller and Bob Feller is a wonderkind and you know, the, maybe the original Roy Hobbs from, from the natural. Tell us, tell us about. His story, please.
1: I think that his origin story is the greatest that professional sports in this country has known. He's a prodigy in a sport that very rarely has them. He had grown up on a farm in rural Iowa. His father, who was a farmer, sensed this incredible ability in his son from a very early age. And so whenever Bob Feller wasn't even a teenager yet, his father cleared off a part of their farmland and built him a baseball diamond right there in the cornfields. It's essentially the original field of dreams. And so for the next five years, Feller trains on there playing against sort of local teams, oftentimes with people that are twice his age, and he's just blowing them away. He has a fastball that, if it was thrown into the cornfield, could have set the the crops on fire. And he gets picked up by the Indians when he's a junior in high school. Through sort of happenstance, he makes it onto the Indians. And in his very first major league start, he ties the American League record in strikeouts. Four starts later, he ties the American League record. I mean, the major league record in strikeouts was 17. I mean, he's he's a phenom. He's somebody that really sets. He really captures the America, the nation's attention. He's on Time magazine cover by the time he's 18. His graduation ceremony from high school is broadcast live on NBC radio from coast to coast. He really sort of represents. This, uh, these sort of traditional can do American spirit values in the Great Depression during a time whenever Americans were questioning whether that was still possible, whether, whether those values had any meaning. And the fact that he's a youth that is doing this really spoke to the country. So he becomes this avatar of sort of middle American values. In fact,
0: when he joins the major leagues, In 1936, he is 17. So when he's setting those strikeout records, essentially back to back, um, he's still just 17 years old,
1: which is. yeah, He goes back to high school in the off season and the superintendent has to put up sort of blackout shades over the high school because there's so many photographers and press people that are just trying to take a picture of Bob Feller's study in calculus or something like he, he was a kid.
0: Yeah, He was a kid, but he was he was a phenom and he has spectacular seasons throughout the, the 1930s, long before Larry Dolby is is on the team. And he probably was on pace to set every single major league baseball pitching record there ever was, say, for World War Two. So tell us a little bit of, of him. He's he's this phenom. Then the Second World War intervenes.
1: Yeah, by 19, by the end of the 1941 season, Bob Feller is 22 years old, an age whenever a lot of people are still in the minors. He already has a hundred wins and a thousand strikeouts. As you said, Pitching records seem all within reach if he stays healthy. Pearl Harbor happens, and it kind of affects him deeply. He um, listens to it on the radio, and immediately goes and signs up for the Navy. He doesn't have to; he could have held out probably for two seasons because he was the sole supporter of his family. But he feels this tremendous obligation to go. And then once he's in the the Navy, he doesn't want to be just a promotional figure. He volunteers to be on a battleship and goes into the South Pacific and sees extremely. Heavy fighting. He's there for some of the 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 worst of the, the the battles in the South Pacific, and is very lucky he gets out of there alive. And he comes back in 1945, quite a changed man. He's a little bit has a harder edge to him. He's a little blunter, and he's also sort of interested in financial recovery because he lost quite a bit of money having gone to the war as well. So he becomes quite this amazing businessman. As well.
0: So uh, before we continue on with Feller, I think this uh, amazing businessman is the perfect segue to to Satchel Page. And then we'll come back to see what they they did together. Um, Because Satchel Page is something like the opposite side of the story that Bob Feller had the blessed, recorded by everybody uh, story. So tell us about Satchel Page.
1: I think that's the exact right way to think about Satchel Paige. He was every bit as good and every bit of a phenom as Feller, but because he was black, he did—he wasn't given the sort of uh, classic American story that that Feller was able to live out from a very early age. Paige is, grows up in the deep south and in, in southern Alabama. Um, During a time of extreme Jim Crow laws, lynching, all that sort of thing. Um, He gets sent to a reform school when, when he's a very young man and he learns how to pitch there. And he sort of builds himself up over the next decade into the preeminent star of the Negro Leagues. He is somebody who has impeccable control. He can throw the baseball wherever he wants to. He oftentimes will put a dime or a chewing gum wrapper on the plate and just throw balls over that. Um, He has an incredible fastball-like feller. And what's more, he's quite the showman. He, somebody who would sort of crank his arm like an old time automobile, or sort of slow walk to the mound with this deadpan look on his face, and just delight crowds to no end. People would say that just the you know the the idea that Satchel Page was that was going to pitch could draw ten thousand more people to a stadium. He really built himself up into kind of almost like a mythical figure. And then he knew how to capitalize upon that. He would pitch for a Negro League team, whether it was the Kansas City Monarchs or the Pittsburgh Crawfords. But then in between games, he would sort of lend himself out to whatever team needed a boost, whether they were a semi-pro team or even a local team. He would just go there and pitch for them, get a cut of the game receipt, get his fee, go back to his Negro League team. So during the depression at a time when the Negro Leagues are in complete collapse, Satchel Paige is making about as much as any white superstar at the time, which is truly phenomenal, and it speaks to his incredible entrepreneurial sense.
0: Right, and so you have this entrepreneurial sense in Satchel Paige, and then you have this Bob Feller who feels cheated, if you will, out of the the best years of his life from a financial standpoint – uh, because of the contracts he theoretically would have gotten, and this relationship builds between the two men, and they start what is called barnstorming. So tell tell us about that because th- that's a very interesting part of baseball history.
1: Yeah, it's a wild part of baseball history, and it's it's so fascinating. So. At a time, whenever uh, there was a thing called the Reserve Clause, which really kept Major League Superstars tied to the original team that drafted them, players didn't have as much leverage to negotiate their salaries, so they weren't making as much as they perhaps could have been. So to supplement their salaries after the season, usually in October and November, these players would hit the uh, hit the road and sort of play games, kind of exhibition games around the country in cities that didn't have major league teams and so didn't get to see major league players. And they would do this before the cold weather came in to sort of make a little bit of money before they had to go into the off season. And the big superstars like Bob Feller or Rogers Hornsby or Dizzy Dean could front barnstorming teams, kind of like the Bob Feller All-Stars or something like that. And barnstorming was, was interesting in that not only sort of were they exhibition games that sort of exposed major league players to people that didn't get to see them, but it was the only time whenever major stars like Feller got to play against players from the Negro leagues, like Satchel Paige, um, in, in order to sort of heighten interest and sort of uh, heighten the drama, they would have all white teams compete against all black teams. And so you drew both white and black fans. So at that time, since Feller was the biggest calling card on the white side and and Page was the biggest calling side among Black fans, they often teamed up together and sort of toured the country as Bob Feller versus Satchel Paige, the best white pitcher versus the best Black pitcher, to the point that after the war, it became much more professionalized. Feller built this gigantic tour that had airplanes and stadiums and all of the fix-ins all around. And they took a month in October in 1946 playing against each other, Bob Feller versus Satchel Page across the country. They drew 250,000 fans to those games. It was really uh, quite uh, quite a spectacle.
0: And and Page matched Feller essentially pitch for pitch, inning for inning, strikeout for strikeout. I think Paige may have actually gotten the better of Feller when you look at the at the statistics.
1: Yeah. And Page was much older than Feller at that time. And so, uh, yeah, it was really kind of a way, I mean, Feller was interested in, in economic recovery. And so he used those tours as, as a way of building back the money that he'd lost during the war. And he did that. And then some, but for Page, the, the, the tours were much more personal. He was about 40 years old in 1946 and Jackie Robinson had just signed with the Dodgers. There was this idea that, that, that people were going to be looking at the younger players like Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, Larry Doby, and older players like Satchel Page had missed their chance. It was too late. They weren't going to be able to make it into the major leagues. So really, Feller took, or Page took those tours with Feller as a way of showing white players, fans, executives, I still have what it takes not only to strike out major league batters, but to beat the best major league pitcher that you have. And so it was really personal. Page wanted to win those games against Feller as a means of showing that uh, a major league owner could roll the dice on him and he could still deliver.
0: The thing that's interesting is notwithstanding this head-to-head matchup where I think Page um, bested Feller, whenever Feller was – asked in interviews, what do you think of these Negro League players? He was not complimentary at all. I mean, one might say that there was a latent racism to his language, but surely he was not a proponent of the, the Negro League players making it into the major leagues, right?
1: It's very complicated. I don't quite... I don't quite understand all of the reasons why Feller would say such things. Um, He was asked numerous times before integration whether he thought that any of the players that he was barnstorming against had what it took to make it into the major leagues. And invariably, he would say no. He did not sort of state it as in, I do not want players to be in the league. I I think that it would cause sort of social tensions or something like that. He always focused on the idea of ability. And the way that I thought about it in the book was Feller had this sort of miraculous breakthrough when he was 17 years old and he was kind of, he would use that breakthrough as a way of saying that if you work hard, have strong family bonds, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, all of these things that Americans tell themselves, then you can do this. And so he kind of looked at the Negro League players the same way. Like he would t- say about Satchel Page oh, he doesn't throw his fastball enough. He doesn't have a varied pitching arsenal. His curveball's not that good. He would critique him in terms of sort of individual faults and be like, well, that's why he's not in the major leagues. He's not looking at the larger sort of structural and and, uh, prejudicial barriers that are preventing someone like Page from having the same breakthrough as Feller. So he was blind to these sort of larger structural barriers that Black players simply couldn't bootstrap away.
0: The notion that Satchel Paige could make his way to the major leagues in the same way that Bob Feller made his way to the major leagues and to have feller think that it's right. just it's fantasy he didn't, he just ignored the realities being a black player and being black in America that's why i say for me when he talked only in terms of well he doesn't throw his fastball enough or he wasn't trained right. in the way that i was trained i just think that that is you know sort of an excuse but yeah. we, we can le- leave it there so we have these four players Dolby is on the Indians. We're in, in beginning of the 48th season. Feller has returned from the war. He's not the pitcher he once was, and he sort of has thrown his arm out a little bit during these barnstorming because they would pitch almost every single day, three, three or four yeah. innings every exactly. day, right, for the entire um, three months that they that, that that they played. So you've got Vec owning this team. He's integrated this team. He's the uh, master showman he's got feller and he's got dolby and the season begins so tell us about the the 48 season because it's an interesting season and we'll and we'll take it forward to where where it ends up
1: yeah well, you gotta start in spring training. Um, Larry Doby, as I said, had had a very bad 1947 season, his, his first year on the Indians. And it was simply because he didn't get enough playing time. He was nervous. He hadn't been acclimated to the Indians. And after that season ended, everybody said, oh, he's not even going to be on the Indians in 1948. Everybody assumed that the Indians were going to send him down to the minors or release him altogether. And in fact, whenever they go into spring training, the Indians had eight outfielders on the club. Larry Doby, who was a second baseman, was being converted to an outfielder, and he was last on that list. And they knew that they could only have like four or five outfielders on the team. So there was no way Doby was going to make it. But then he comes into spring training and it's like he slipped a switch. He's a completely different player. He is hitting home runs. He's flying around the outfield. He has an incredible throwing arm. He's learning his position rapidly to the point where Lou Boudreau, who is the playing manager of the Indians, is starting to say to reporters, I don't know if we can send him down. And it's kind of a miraculous situation. He is somebody who had no shot whatsoever, basically – makes it onto the team at the very end. And he's really struggles there on the Indians in the first month. Uh, he's not used to playing often in the major leagues. He's never played the outfield. He makes a lot of errors, um, but he is given space to learn on the job. And then you kind of look at Bob Feller, as you said, he kind of has thrown his arm out in 1946 and 1947. He's thrown an incredible amount of innings. He comes into 1948 And it looks like he's almost gassed. He has a losing record by the all-star break. And there's this sense on the Indians that if they don't get more pitching to back up Bob Feller, the season is, is sure to be over.
0: Right. And so they're doing what the, what they do best, which is they go into the late summer months and they begin to fail. Right. But
1: Vec
0: has a, you know, Uh, uh, a card up his sleeve or whatever the expression is. And and tell us what happens in August uh, of of 48.
1: Well, I I think it's one of the sort of great symmetries of this book where you have Bob Feller and Satchel Paige who have barnstormed against each other since 1936. So for 12 years, these men have barnstormed against each other. And Paige, who has been, during those 12 years, Pining for a chance to make it onto a major league team with nobody willing to take a shot at him, even whenever he is just dominating the competition, finally gets his shot, mainly because Bob Feller is having such a tough season and Bill Vec knows the history of the Indians and they, they do fade down the break. And so he realizes that he needs to reinforce that pitching if possible. So he is desperate enough to call Satchel Paige and they bring him into Cleveland for a tryout. Uh, Lou Boudreau, who is very skeptical of Satchel Paige steps in against him. And after about 10 pitches is just like, you've got to sign him. He has exactly what it takes. And so whenever Paige comes onto to the Indians, they are in a tremendously tight pennant race with the Red Sox, the Indians and the Philadelphia athletics. At certain times, there are four teams tied for first place. It is anyone's pennant race and Paige, Kind of injects a spark of emotion into the Indians whenever he pitches 70, 80,000 people are coming to see him pitch. It's almost like Beatlemania has swept across the country. They go into Chicago and fans literally tear out the turnstiles to see Satchel Paige pitch. They're underneath the bleachers looking up through the slats of the wood to see Satchel Paige. It's just people have been waiting to see Satchel Paige in the majors for so long. And now he's finally there. And it sparks a mania around them that not only sort of, causes the Indians to have the highest attendance rate ever, but really gives the Indians a jolt just whenever they need it.
0: And he's 42? 42. When he signed, and he wins six games for the Indians in August, which really catapults them to what turns out to be a one-game playoff, right? Does not the 48 season end with the Red Sox and the Indians tied? In a one-game playoff to see who plays in the World Series? It does.
1: And so every single one of those victories that Satchel Paige gave the Indians, those six wins, were six wins that the Indians wouldn't have had in, in a normal season or wouldn't have had under any other owner. And so really, Satchel Paige is, is integral to to getting the Indians to the point where they could even possibly make the playoffs. But first, they have to go through the Red Sox.
0: Right. You, you called the Indians, I think it was a great expression of uh, or descriptor, of them you said they were a historic team and a transitional team right is right. is that a fair and apt description of what we what we're experiencing here in 48
1: yeah definitely um i mean the subtitle of the book is the world series of changed baseball but it could just as easily have been the the sort of team that did because um they are they are a uh, they're, they're a team that's giving the, the other major league teams a blueprint for what they can do. As I said, the Indians had always been lagging behind the Red Sox and the Yankees. They basically are finally able to get past them by integrating. So you could see these other teams that are struggling, whether it's the Nationals or the Phillies or the Browns, and they could follow this blueprint if you want to sort of inject your team with life. Sign players from the Negro leagues. Integrate—that is a sort of a fast track way of doing it.
0: In fact, tell me if I'm um, right about this, but I, I, I remember that the Cleveland Browns football team in 1946, which is playing in the All American Football Conference, integrates with Marion Motley and Bill Willis—the first integration of the All American um, Football Conference—and they win the 1946 uh, all american football w- w- league conference game
1: yeah the cleveland at this time is really at the forefront of integration on many different levels you have the browns who integrated before the before the indians did and then you also have um cleveland forming sort of city councils and things like that to look at issues like discrimination and segregation in workplaces across the city, and they eventually sort of empowered these city councils to be able to take uh, measures against companies that do practice this sort of discrimination. It got to the point where Ebony Magazine in 1950 said that Cleveland was the most progressive city in all of the United States.
0: So, the one game playoff this is the Boston Red Sox team, which is Spawn Insane and Pray for Rain. Is that right?
1: That was the Boston Braves. Oh, that um, was the Braves. That was the World Series game. Right. Yeah, the yeah. World Series.
0: Sorry, the, the Red Sox were just Jaguars. the Red Sox. Yeah. And, and, and tell, so how does that game play out? Because they have to win to get to the to play the Boston Braves, the Spawn and Sane and spe- Pray for Rain team. Sorry.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, Bill Beck had signed uh, from the Yankees a knuckleballer named Gene Bearden who was somebody who was severely injured in the war, knocked from a uh, a ship after a torpedo had hit it and basically just wrecked his knee. He could barely lift his knee uh, up to his waist. And so he still wanted to be a pitcher in the major leagues. And so he taught himself how to throw a knuckleball. And that is who the Indians uh, bring out in Fenway Park against the Red Sox. And Bearden, had a knuckleball that sort of had a weird motion. I don't know if it was because of his injury or the way he threw it, but in 1948, nobody could figure it out. He won 20 games, which was more than Bob Feller did during that, that year. And so the Indians have an unorthodox choice. The Red Sox start an old veteran named Danny Galehouse and the Indians just jump on him immediately. Um, by the fifth inning, the game is over and the Indians win eight to three. It's, it's a huge, uh, huge relief for them to have made it to the World Series.
0: And so now I'll ask the correct question, which was Cleveland plays the Boston Braves. So two Red Sox, two Boston teams, Boston
1: teams yeah, one same.
0: American League, one National League. They play the Boston Braves, and that's that famous team that they said spawn and sane and pray for rain. So tell us a little bit about that. The, the opponents to to the Indians.
1: Well, they're kind of the 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 opposite image of the Indians, the Indians are a team that is full of drama. The Indians are a team that has big personalities and the Indians had this roller coaster season up and down in 1948, a couple of games ahead, a couple of games behind the Braves were the opposite of that. They got into first place early in spring and they just never relinquished their lead. They had a bunch of players that were more known as workhorses um, guys like Bob Elliott and, uh, uh, Eddie Stanky and people like this. And, uh, they were really anchored by their two pitchers on the mound, Johnny Sane and Warren Spawn. And there was this sort of idea that the Braves could win the pennant simply by having one game thrown by Spawn, one game thrown by Sane, and then there could be a day of rain and then Spawn could come right back. Um, and so that's kind of their blueprint in the World Series as well. They, they pitched Spahn and Sane as much as, as much as they could.
0: And how, how did the series play out? And I, I think there's a tragic sort of note or footnote about the the World Series as it relates to Paige, but there's also a, a wonderful moment as it relates to Dolby and Steve Gromek. So maybe we could talk a little bit about each of those, you know, sort of dead opposite experiences that these players had in the Major League uh, World Series.
1: Yeah, so Paige has been waiting for his entire life to throw in the Major League World Series. He, in fact, at the time calls it his, uh, his, his life's ambition to throw in the Major League World Series. But by the time they get there, he had won six games in, in August, but really faded in September to the point where he kind of was out of the rotation. And so there was sort of a question whether or not Page, now in the bullpen, was even going to get in. And a lot of the Indian starters, whether Feller, Bob Lemon, or uh Gene Bearden, went the distance. Bob Feller had a, also a tragic World Series. He just pitched incredibly in game one. He had a no-hitter going through five innings. He had a one-hitter going through eight. And then he loses whenever he walks a guy they bunt him over to second, and then Feller basically picks him off. The guy should have been out, but the umpire missed the call, called him safe. The next guy gets a hit. Feller loses the game one to nothing. Um, it was a real sort of tragedy for Feller. He gets in again in game five, and then he just gets hammered, um, really uh, gets his ba- brains beaten out. But because Feller has such a bad game in game five, Satchel Paige is able to come in later and pitch just two-thirds of an inning, but he gets both of his batters out, and he could say that he fulfilled his life's ambition. Um, Larry Doby, on the other hand, has an incredible World Series. He leads all the Indians and batters, batting 318, and in basically what is the pivotal game of the World Series, which is game four, they're facing Johnny Sain. The Indians are up two games to one, and Doby comes to bat in the fourth inning with the Indians ahead one to nothing, and he hits a home run that barely clears the fences against Sane, and it proves to be the winning run of the game. If he doesn't hit that, the Indians are tied and probably end up losing the game. Steve Bromek, who was pitching that game, was kind of a, you know, mediocre pitcher, run of the mill sort of guy. This is the highlight of his career. He's he's thrown the best game that he ever will throw. He wins 2 to 1 and in the dugout afterwards, he sees Doby who has hit the home run that gets him the win and just spontaneously grabs him in a hug and they're sitting they're standing there cheek to cheek just smiling, laughing the whole thing. And that photo gets snapped by news reporters and it goes out across the country on the front page of newspapers. And it's really a sight that you didn't see in the nation back then. A white pitcher and a black hitter in this completely spontaneous, joyful embrace um, celebrating each other.
0: Yeah, I think Dolby said of that picture that it was the first time a teammate showed his feelings for me, right?
1: That is a really sad statement but yes Dobie because he didn't get to commune with his teammates off the on the road because for so long at least until Satchel Paige came he was the only black player on the team he felt very separate from people and there were people on the team that did not accept him and so there was a sort of chilliness about uh about Doby in the the, the the dugout and so whenever Gromack grabbed him and it was something that Gromack did just kind of, uh, you know, extemporaneously, without even thinking, not thinking, well, how are the guys going to think about it whenever I do this? It was a spontaneous display of emotion. And Doby felt that, that it was sort of uh, a gesture of acceptance, of he was being treated like any other player would have been treated. And it really meant a lot to him, so much so that um, I understand that Doby had that picture framed on his wall to the day that he died.
0: So, as you said earlier, your subtitle for the book, Our Team, is The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series That Changed Baseball. Now, I think through our conversation, we see how it's changed baseball. But is there any sort of summary notion of the change that you thought these four men, as you did your research, it just took a long time, this took you three and a half years, right, to... To do all this research, this is about the most well-documented bibliography um, in any sports book that I that I that I've ever read. It's it's really a testament to to, to great uh, research and writing on your part. But
1: what do you, what do you what do you view this as the most important takeaways? Well, I always thought that there were three. One, you can sort of look at the figure of Vilvack and all he did to inject entertainment and spectacle into the game. You can go to a baseball game now and see sort of t-shirt cannons and, you know, mascots and cap dances and all this sort of stuff. And all of that has the fingerprints of Beck over it. He was sort of instrumental in creating the modern stadium experience. You can look at Feller page and sort of see this uh, inkling of the athlete as businessman, the athlete as brand, the athlete as sort of building himself into his own, personal empire, um, you know, there's a straight line that could be drawn from someone like Satchel Page to someone like Michael Jordan. They were both just these incredible entrepreneurial individuals who knew how to leverage their story and abilities into greater financial gain. And then, of course, you have this sort of racial aspect. They were the first uh, Black team to, to win, the team with Black players to win the World Series, and um, it really provided a blueprint that, unfortunately, as I get into in the epilogue, Not enough teams took advantage of. After the World Series, the Braves owner, the owner of the Boston Braves, said that whenever the Braves went to spring training in 1949, there would be a delegation of black players vying for spots in their roster because they knew that if they were going to beat a team like the Indians, they would have to copy their methods. And that just didn't happen. They either got cold feet or prejudice stopped them or something like that. And it did take a long time for other teams to finally get wise to what Vec uh, knew as early as 1948, that a very easy way to to sort of best the competition was to integrate.
0: And it's interesting that in the American League where these teams were, the Yankees integrate in 55 and the Red Sox, I think, in 59, among the slowest teams to integrate in baseball. So notwithstanding a winning team, a world series champion major league baseball is still dragging its feet around racial integration.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was, you know, David Halberstam's book, October, 1964, really gets into um, the Yankees and, and and the price they paid for dragging their feet for so long. Um, They had these incredible teams through the 1950s that sort of bred a complacency about uh, about stocking their farm systems and building for the future. They just sort of thought that they were the Yankees and they could continue to be like this. But uh, it caught up to them at the end. Uh, the, the St. Louis Cardinals were a team that was heavily integrated and, and did sort of overtake them. So the Yankees paid the price for integrating quite slowly.
0: Right. That that was the, the 1964 World Series, right? The St. Louis Cardinals with Bob Gibson, Lou Brock, Kurt Flood, um, beat the um, beat the Yankees because they had only, I think, signed Elson Howard. I think at that by that that point in time. Yeah,
1: yeah, they were much slower and, and less aggressive in, in doing so. But
0: it's interesting because we saw that in football too. There's that famous um, episode of the USC integrated football team coming down to Alabama to play the all white um, football team and and beating beating them. And and I think it was it Bear Bryant who said if we don't integrate, we're not gonna be a, a powerhouse team. But it too took too long after that event. So you learn your lessons in your in your mind, and then it seems it takes another period of time, too long a period of time before they're action in actioned.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Great point.
0: So Luke, one last question. Where do these four protagonists of yours stand in relationship to the Baseball Hall
1: of Fame? They were all inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and they all have kind of interesting stories of how they got into there. Um, Satchel Paige was the very first player inducted primarily from the pitching that he did in the Negro Leagues. Um, this was a time whenever uh, – Major League Baseball in the early 1970s had decided that they wanted to bring in players from the Negro Leagues. And so they were bringing in one person per year. There was this idea that they were going to, they were going to build a separate hall for players that were in the Negro Leagues. But there was such an outcry over that because it would seem like they were segregated from the actual players that Page got his plaque in with the other uh, inductees into the Hall of Fame. Larry Doby didn't get inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame until the 1990s. And so this was about 35 or so years years after he had retired. Jackie Robinson got in immediately. Doby had to wait quite a long time. So his uh, contributions to the game uh, were not as well recognized at that time. Um, and Bill Veck didn't get inducted until he had unfortunately passed away. Um, a lot of owners and other sort of executives uh, had mixed feelings about Veck because he was quite a maverick. He was somebody who enjoyed sort of uh, going against the grain and all these sorts of things. And in a, in a traditionalist institution like major league baseball, Bill Beck wasn't always the most liked figure. Um, but he eventually did get in. And I believe that his hall of fame plaque says something like a champion of the little man uh, so of, of the underdog is what that means that he, that, that was his spirit.
0: And Bob Feller.
1: Bob Feller got in the same year that Jackie Robinson got in and they continued their feud. Uh, Bob Feller had, had questioned whether Jackie Robinson was going to make it into the major leagues. That got brought up again during his Hall of Fame ceremony, and Bob Feller defended his answer. And so even then, he was kind of uh, saying statements that were perhaps um, not recommended to say. Uh, so uh, it's kind of interesting that Feller and Jackie Robinson made it into the Hall of Fame in the same class.
0: So this has been a fascinating conversation, Luke. It's a, it's a terrific book. I recommend it to everybody. The, the title of the book, again, is Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men and the World Series That Changed Baseball. Thanks so much for writing this and for joining me today on That Said.
1: Thanks. I had a great time.
0: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at ThatSaidZeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.